0: The early Hebrew story found in the book of Genesis tells the story about the first man and the first woman who were tempted to eat the fruit of a tree in order that they may know good and evil. From that story to the present, we are still asking questions about what makes an action right or wrong. More importantly, when does a person step across the threshold from a gray character towards becoming a bona fide villain? The reverse question also presents itself. What makes someone a hero? What are the earmarks of a hero? Does a hero always win? Does a hero always have to succeed to be labeled so? And what about the mass that find themselves in the gray area, reliving or silently sitting by while atrocities are committed all around them? How do we classify them? We'll be tracking the life and actions of three individuals. Two of them are some of history's greatest malefactors. The other is a story you have possibly never heard. He's hardly the most consequential hero of this story. He's just one of countless people who fought back while a mass of society chose to join or relent as opposed to the chance to resist. In this series, we will explore these three lives and watch how they intertwine into critical moments that define them and change history in radical ways. This is a story about what makes a villain and what makes a hero. On June the 20th, 1944, General von Stauffenberg was tired of Hitler. He started to see Hitler as a monster. He had seen enough bloodshed, violence, and destruction that he had finally had enough. And so Hitler arrived at his headquarters in Poland in a place known as the Wolf's Lair. The military base of operation was filled with Hitler's higher ups. Von Stauffenberg took a suitcase loaded with explosives and left them in the room under the pre- and left the room under the pretense of a phone call. The bomb went off, killing the stenographer and three other officers, but it didn't kill its primary target. The suitcase had been moved in order to get a better better view of the map. If it had not, Hitler would have been dead. As it was, his pants were shredded and his eardrums sustained damage as it was perforated. However, Hitler survived, and this will spell the end for many, a disaster for 200 names of people who are rounded up to answer for this. But Bonhoeffer's name wasn't found on this list, because in 1943, Bonhoeffer had already been arrested. The year is 1942. Now, in 1940, Hiller had a stellar year. In terms of success, things couldn't have gone better. Everything went exactly as he predicted. 1941 isn't a real bad year for him either. He seems to be getting a lot of the things that he wants. But the year of 1942 is going to begin, not totally finished, but it's going to begin the process of starting the the closure, of closing things in on Hitler. The walls are coming in. In the early months of January, Hitler makes a blow against America. Now, what he does is he sends German U-boats not terribly far from the New York shore, something known in history as the Battle of the Atlantic. He sinks eight unarmed ships. And by the end of the month, it's 25. So the Battle of the Atlantic breaks out. This is a war that Hitler is not really going to win. But nevertheless, in a short period of time, in a short six months, the Allies have lost more than 230 ships, and they've sunk more than 5 million tons of desperately needed material all the way to the bottom of the Atlantic. So they definitely did some damage. Hitler is beginning to crystallize his final plans, beginning this hardcore, systematic extermination of the Jews. Hitler has been planning this from the beginning of his reign. He just wasn't sure when and how he would get away with it. In fact, there was a time where he thought that perhaps he would not ever have the opportunity to do that. But he is is this is coming about, and it's all coming from his own twisted, ridiculous, and perverse mind. But he does have another problem that's exacerbating the issue. Hitler's a drug addict. Hitler's fifty-two years old, and his health is failing rapidly in the early periods of the war. His already twisted mind is going to be exposed to another substance that will enhance and alter his psychosis. His uh, his doctor, if you can call him a doctor, named Theodore morell, starts to give him a lot of different types of medications. This becomes more severe as the war continues on. By 1945, he's practically running on drugs. He's taking opiates, cocaine, hormones, steroids, and other forms of dope. In fact, his last meeting with Mussolini... Mussolini was so bizarre because when Hitler showed up, he was hopped up on crystal meth. He was hopped up so bad that he actually yelled at Mussolini for two hours. He wasn't actually yelling at him because he was angry. Just everything he said, he was screaming and yelling because he was so amped up. And of course, to sleep, he needed morphine to help him get through all of that. So Hitler's health is beginning to wane and fade rapidly. Now, we have to be careful when we talk about Hitler's drug issue. There are a number of revisionist historians who want to paint Uh, This idea that maybe Hitler wasn't so bad. Maybe Hitler wouldn't have done these things if he hadn't been messed up on drugs. And I'm certainly sure that drugs impaired a number of his decisions. Drugs are bad, you shouldn't take them. Uh, They're not good for your system, obviously. But I also want to be careful because in the early periods before Hitler was really addicted to any type of drugs, many of these ideas were already talked about and, and formulated by Hitler. These were not things that he did not want to do. These were things he already had planned to do, and that come from his own twisted mind. So when we talk about his drug addiction, drugs enhanced the situation, but drugs are not the cause. Even when we look at his twisted mental illness, and he has a very serious mental problem, even when we're talking about that, we are still looking at a human being that is making these choices. The thing about Hitler is it's easier to just blame it on drugs or try to paint him as a demon and not as a man. It's the fact that he is a man and that drugs are not causing this. Drugs are only enhancing this, that we don't always like to talk about. That's what makes us uncomfortable. And if that unnerves you, good. It should. Because there's a hate that sometimes arises, an irrational hate that arises in the human heart and the human mind. And all of us can be subject to that. All of us can, can fall prey to that if we're not careful. Hitler is an example to us of what we could be if we're not careful. That's what I want you to keep in mind now, during the war the year of nineteen fourteen America is deeply entrenched with the war with the Japanese, so pressure has really not heated up on the Western Front yet with Hitler. but the heat is on for Stalin. The attempt to take Moscow is really more difficult than Hitler has anticipated. Moscow is able to be held by Stalin and his people, and in many ways. In a strange way, this actually turned out to be a positive thing for Stalin and kind of built a little bit of rapport with the people who basically hated and feared him. Not to say that it, you know, fixed everything, because it certainly didn't fix anything. But you get the basic idea that there was, some, there was, a, uh, there was a sense in which there was some, some building there that took place uh, by standing together during this crisis. So Hitler decides Moscow is too risky, we can't take it, so here's what we're going to do instead. Let's go to Volgograd. Now, Volgorod at this time was known by another name. It was called Stalingrad. This was an industrial power for Russia, which is why Hitler decided to choose it. And during the three months in the late fall and early winter, the battle raged for Stalingrad, and it was a bloodbath. Stalin had suffered serious losses. Initially, it looked like he was going to lose Stalingrad. But Stalin was crazy, too. And as far as we know, there were no drugs in his system to make him crazy. He was just crazy. He's a real example of this. And to think of him, again, right now Hitler has been a major focus. But let's not forget, Stalin is just as brutal and just as warped as Hitler. And so Hitler, Stalin decides that he's going to give order number 227, no step back. So that he says, hold the city of Stalingrad at all costs. So in late 1942, the Russians uh, were fighting back. And around where the Germans came in, the Russians formed a ring around them to trap them in and to cut off their supplies. This was kind of a genius move. Then they kind of back off and they let the winter do its magic. The same winter that almost killed all of Napoleon's army. Because, like Napoleon, Hitler's going to learn a valuable lesson. Never invade Russia. Fact, guys. Now, uh, the Russians capture... Many German soldiers, who and they end up putting them into the gulag when they die in the gulag, which is a fitting death uh, considering what they participated in doing to the Jews. And Hitler now has to acknowledge for the first time in the early part of 1943 uh, that he has failed to take Stalingrad. This is a massive defeat because Stalingrad has been a huge plank in his platform. He's going he's gonna to go out and he's going to show the Russians and put the communists in their place, and well, it didn't work out. The communists kind of put him in his place. So this is, a, this is another step, another plank in the process of Hitler beginning to take this downgrade. Now, while all this is going on in 1942, America is engaged in another very important endeavor uh, while they're facing off with the Germans in the Battle of the Atlantic. 1939, before they got involved with the war, a Jewish physicist named Albert Einstein wrote a letter to FDR. In the letter, he explained that Hitler was looking for a way to capitalize on a growing body of scientific work. Um, that proved that a weapon of mass destruction could be created, the atomic bomb. If this fell into Hitler's hands, Einstein thought this could be catastrophic for society. So Einstein suggested that FDR set up a commission to study and create the atomic bomb so that America would have access to this weapon before it fell into the hands of the Third Reich. By early 1942, they're very much underway with this experiment, the lead scientist is a Jew named Robert Oppenheimer. And the experiments that he are carrying out are being played in a desert along a modern along in the modern day New Mexico. So while they sustain a reaction and the bomb goes off, when they sustain a reaction, the bomb goes off for the first time on the desert floor, it crystallizes as sand. Oppenheimer is down in his bunker wearing a special pair of glasses. When he looks up and sees what happens, he quotes from the Bhagavad Gita by quoting Krishna. He says, I have become death, the destroyer of worlds. What is more fascinating is to realize only 50 years before Maria and, uh, and Pierre Curry were stirring this stuff in a cauldron in, in a back shed they were using for research, now that very, that very thing has created a bomb with tremendous capacity, run mostly by uranium. Whether they intended it or not, uh, they released to the world an age of atomic energy. Einstein would live to see what the bomb would do and Einstein would live to not only regret it, but to spend the rest of his life trying to fix what he had done. Hitler and the Nazis might have been aware that their objective is coming to its close. They start to amp up the process of extermination in almost a form of desperation. They're sending Jews from everywhere to concentration camps where they'll be worked, starved, abused, and murdered. They even create a special chamber known as the gas chamber, where the Jews are stripped down, herded in, and gassed with a lethal chemical. In 1942, possessions of the Jews start to be taken away. So when the Jews are taken to camps, all of their possessions and things that they own that have value to them are taken and redistributed to the German people. Thousands every day are being eliminated, and their stuff is going to people who they've never met before. Camps like Buchenwald and Auschwitz and Dachau and Flossenburg and other Polish extermination camps see a rapid increase as the acceleration of Nazi ideologies. But time is running out for the Third Reich, and if they're going to accomplish their goal of eliminating the Jews, they're going to need to get a move on things. Now, looking at some of the things that are taken, those of you that are able to see the document that I've shared with you should be able to see the Jewish wedding rings taken at Buchenwald. There's a whole crate full of them. You also see there's a... A bales of hair that had been wrapped up in tight of a, a bag more or less and that hair was used to make kind of felt or yarn a lot of this hair came from Auschwitz so women's heads were shaved and when they were shaved that hair was taken to make uh, to make yarn out of and then of course at the bottom you may be able to see the clothes that were taken from the children who were gassed those clothes were given uh, to from Jewish children were given to German children so, again, you see this, this transfer of Jewish wealth being given to the Germans, uh, and, of course, the Jews themselves are being rapidly exterminated. The second picture I had, it comes from Auschwitz. This is a picture of inside of a gas chamber. If you've never seen one, you should take a look at it. So right at the top, they were all held inside. They were put inside of this. Uh, the door was closed very tightly. And then, of course, they would have gas that was dropped in from the top and it was a pretty rapid, uh, pretty rapid death. But it was enough that they were all herded in, and you can see that if you look at many of the walls, this is not the only place you'll find that. You'll see claw marks where people were clawing to get out when the gas was dropped. So not you think about the horrific and horrifying thing that's happening in Germany in 1952 in Poland, these, these events will long be remembered way, way after the Holocaust has come to its close. In 1943, Hitler is again amping up his act toward the Jews. They begin liquidating ghettos and the number of of Jewish victims now by the early parts of 1943 have passed a million. But the defeat at Stalingrad is going to slow things down uh, for the Reich's expansion, not for the actions against the Jews. By the summer, the Allies' Uh, have taken Italy and they've deposed Mussolini and Italy has declared war on Germany. Hitler is feeling pressure and many of the German people are ready for this to be over. There is no small loss of life. Going into 1944, Berlin is under siege and the Allies are turning the tide. Jews are rebelling and fighting back. Poles are fighting back. The loss of uh, The loss of this ally in Italy leaves Hitler reeling from this loss. He amps up his extermination and now it has passed two and a half million deaths in the end of 1943 and the beginning of 1944. Stalin however is more poised than ever to take advantage of the blunders that Hitler is making and he will do so in good time and in 1944 that is the beginning of the process which marks for Hitler the beginning of the end. Now before being implicated in the Valkyrie plot Bonhoeffer had met a girl and became engaged to be married. Unfortunately, in April of 1943, he was implicated in a plot to overthrow the government. Although they didn't catch every piece of the Valkyrie plot, Bonhoeffer was caught. Bonhoeffer was arrested and carted off to prison. He continued there to write, and he wrote a book on Christian life called Life Together that is still read by Lutherans. So von Stauffenberger who is kind of in control of the movement, and of course you know what happens. The Valkyrie plot fails and falls apart. So Hitler fills all this mounting. And if you know anything about narcissism, you would know that Hitler is someone who cannot bear to be criticized. For Hitler, this all results in a desire to start spending more time in isolation because obviously in his own mind, he is not being appreciated for all his gifts and talents and all the things that he brings to the table. Now, Bonhoeffer's brother is also arrested just a few days after Dietrich is. Dietrich was at peace, even though He knew that the likelihood is he was going to die. He knew that he would never get to be married or continue his life work. He's kind of at peace because he followed his conscience. He did all that he was able to do with what was available to him. Now, in the spring of 1944, General Dwight Eisenhower helps put together a plan that will forever alter the landscape of the war. When talking to his men, he told them to look to the left and then to the right and the back and in front of them. He said, those men won't be coming home with you. He was right. This was a dangerous and risky plan that required everything to go well. Every tide had to move exactly the way he predicted. Now, the Germans had entrenched themselves on the coast of Normandy and they wanted to have a beachhead so they could cut a swath through France, recapture France, and cut themselves into Germany. After midnight, twenty four thousand paratroopers and a thousand planes were dropped behind enemy lines. Then and the day, at the break of day, 5,300 ships carrying 176,000 men came streaming onto the, on the shores, the beaches, uh, across the channel into Normandy. June 6, 1944, would be one of the bloodiest days for Americans since the Battle of Antietam in the Civil War. The, this battle closed in on Germany. In the, fo- in the following month, von Stauffenberger, using this victory, thinks that this is the time to kill Hitler. By the fall... Paris has been liberated. France is liberated. Hitler is now hemmed in. The Russians coming at him from one front and the Americans and other allies coming at him from the other front. So after the Battle of the Bulge and the intense fighting of the winter, things are coming to a close. FDR and Stalin and Churchill meet to discuss how the world will be divided up into three particular zones. Decisions made here will deeply impact the world, and in a strange way, will change world history for the next 50 years. Hitler will still be having an effect on world history even into my lifetime. That's right, even in the 80s, this will still be going on. Over the next couple of months, everything is falling down around Hitler. He is now reaching a point where the only soldiers he's able to get are young boys who have no experience in battle. So many of his others have been lost or wounded. He kind of starts to withdraw from society. He can't stand criticism, neither can Stalin, because that's what that's what happens when you're a narcissist. You can't handle anyone saying anything which might cast doubt or aspersion on your abilities or gifts or talents. So Hitler finds himself hunkering away in a bunker more and more, and the killing of Jews is reaching a dizzying height. There are now, as we close in on nineteen forty five, six million Jews. That will be the totality of victim Jewish victims who die under his reign of terror. Hitler is paranoid. He's isolated, and he feels his genius is not being appreciated. He can hardly breathe now. On April 9th, 1945, Bonhoeffer was taken from his cell at the Flossenbürg Concentration Camp and hanged. He was only 39 years old. Just a few days, the Allies actually rolled in. Bonhoeffer would have been saved. Bonhoeffer was a real hero. The next person to die was FDR. That happened in Hot Springs, Arkansas, and while he was on vacation with his girlfriend, he had a girlfriend named Lucy, and don't feel like that's a huge surprise. The whole country basically knew about it back in the 1940s. FDR had a brain aneurysm. He passed away on April the 12th, 1945, just a few days after Bonhoeffer died. Harry Truman is then catapulted to the presidency. He's got some very big surprises awaiting for him, because FDR had mostly kept him in the dark, especially about the Manhattan Project, the big bomb that was being built. So Harry is in for quite a ride when he assumes the Oval Office. Another character who meets his fate in April, and it's kind of funny that all these deaths are happening in April, is Benito Mussolini. You remember him? He's the hero that Hitler based a lot of his ideas and opinions off of. He meets his fate on April the 28th, 1945. Now, when the Allies had came into Italy, Mussolini has run out of power, and he hides himself out in the city of Milan. But now, in 1945, people are tired. They want justice. So he's taken out of his home, and they bring him out to the square. The picture I put on the screen is the square as it looks today. However, you can go online and look and see the actual scene of his death. I wouldn't advise it. It's fairly gruesome. So the Italians killed him. They hung him upside down. They beat him. They desecrated his body by shooting it, hitting with hammers. It was pretty violent. He and other conspirators were killed with him. His mistress, who was hiding out with him in Milan, uh, she, she bites the bullet along with him. But the gig is up for Hitler. As I told you, he's already started to spend a lot more time in his bunker, on April 29, 1945, he finally decides to give Ava Braun the thrill of her life. She always wanted him to marry her. He always refused to marry. He liked to, he liked to appear as the eligible bachelor because he thought that, that that would keep more women supporters involved. But now the gig is up. He might as well give Ava a little something to hang on to. So on April 29, he and Ava are wed. On April the 30th, Hitler realizes he's about to lose the war. And he's going to suffer probably a worse fate than this. So he takes a gun and he shoots himself. And Ava Braun does likewise. Hitler is dead. And as the Allies start to roll through territory, they start to see the horrific loss, the pain and the suffering that was caused by what Hitler did. We look at this today and wonder how a human being could do something like this. How does a person get to this point. The truth of the matter, that's a very long road. And as you saw, there are a lot of factors. His home life, experiences that he had, situations that he encountered along the way, and of course, uh, his mental illness, his addiction to drugs. You couple all those things together and you get a fairly twisted individual. And yet Hitler's hate is not terribly foreign from humans. Unfortunately, hate is something that's existed since humans have existed. It's easy for us to learn to hate something that's different from us. It's much more hard, much more difficult to love. And love is the thing that makes all the difference in the world. So Hitler, Hitler his hatred is a reminder of us that we must appeal to the better angels of our natures. As, as, as Abraham Lincoln once said in his speech in his first inaugural address must appeal to the better angels of our nature as each one of us, while maybe not capable of doing what Hitler has done or capable of doing things that we are, could be ashamed of. Subsequently, we look at Bonhoeffer and we see things that we could be very proud of. We look at Stalin and we see how fear and paranoia, how betrayal and disloyalty play a role in creating a monstrous life that we can make for ourselves. But we also look at uh, at Bonhoeffer, and we see what happens when someone who's small, someone who has no power, stands up for the little person. They may not be successful, but they did what they could, and history will write their story. History will make sure that people know what really happened and who they really were. And so in the stories that we've looked at, as we come to a close, we cannot, we cannot forget the victims themselves, the victims of a violent oppression the victims of, of untold and countless misery. All the bodies that lay stretched out as, as the allies came through the territory and they uncovered mass graves full of human bodies. In the images that I put on the HyperDoc, you'll see um, skin and bones, people who have been starved to death. You'll also see people who are deal, who have uh, have been killed and buried in huge mass graves. In fact, the Allies come through and they make the Germans who worked at that camp, uh, they, make them take, they make them take care and bury the bodies. Over the loudspeakers, they shout things like, you did this, this is your fault, this is this are your doings, you are the authors and architects of this destruction and this violence and this horrible uh, atrocity that has occurred. The Germans never forgot it. In 1980s, 1990s, I first went to Germany as a child. I was there with my, to see my sister, whose, whose husband was stationed at the base. And I remember meeting people at that time who had lived, who were older, who had lived through the war. There was a shame that came on Germany. The Germans were used. The Germans had had been taken advantage of. The Germans had been brainwashed. And because of that, they they carried around with them for a very long time a sense of shame and guilt over what happened out of that of course has come a better and stronger germany germany is was defined by much more than what happened at the holocaust i'm very proud to be german i'm not proud for the things that the germans did during the first second world war but we can't hold all germans accountable for that more importantly to that we can learn a lesson about what happens when we allow hate to run away. You see, in Hitler, we can excuse it as drugs or mental illness, but when we look at the people he led astray, we can only see what it really is, human weakness, human hatred, human violence. Each one of us have a choice to figure out how we want to address that and who we want to be, what kind of person we want to be. Do we want to be a defender of the weak? Do we want to be someone who stands up for justice and right? Do we want to be someone who believes that something has to be done and even if that thing is small, it's better to do something small than do nothing at all? Or will we be like the mass of people who saw the concentration camps and turned their faces away? The countless stories I've read of people who knew that it was going on just down the road from their home, but they were too afraid to say anything because they thought, after all, what could I possibly do anyway? That kind of attitude is why atrocities happen. This is why things occur. And those kinds of people will never, never be heroes. The real heroes are those who believe that something can be done. I also read stories about Germans who hid Jews in their homes and special hiding places, knowing that if they were caught, they would face retribution. I read about a Frenchman who who had a taxi, and he would would drive with his trunk full of Jewish people across into neutral territories in order to save their life. He hauled many of them into Switzerland. I read stories about heroes. When asked, are you a hero? They would always respond, no, I'm not a hero. And they would say, why did you do what you did then? He said, because what else could I do? There was nothing else to do. I mean, I couldn't let them die. The non-heroes, the people who sat and looked at things that happened and closed their eyes. They asked them why they did nothing. They said, what could I do? The truth is, what you can do has a lot, and the power to make changes is in your hands. What you do with it is up to you. What makes a hero? What makes a villain? It's a great question. We're going to close this, but we got one more lesson to talk about what happens to the world and find out the rest of Stalin's story.